And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I've entitled the sermon, The One People of God. And this is an important scriptural text proving the unity of the people of God in all places and at all times. Now, it's been several weeks since we've been in Hebrews, but the verses I've just read are a good summation of chapter 11. And so instead of giving you a review as we study these verses, I believe they will sufficiently remind you of what we've covered. So let's jump right into the text, and here's our first point, and I have four of these today. Four. Here's the first truth. Old Testament believers received God's commendation. That's very clear from the opening phrase of verse 39. Old Testament believers received God's commendation. We see this in the phrase, and all these though commended through their faith. Now, all these are the entire set of faithful men and women exemplars listed in this chapter. They stand as representatives, though, of every true Old Testament believer. Each of them was commended, the verse says. That means they were praised by God. They were acclaimed by God. They were approved by God. This was actually noted multiple times already in the chapter. It began back in verse 2 when it said that by faith, the people of old received their commendation. They received their approval. It means God testified on their behalf and in their favor. So in verse 4, Abel was commended by God when he accepted his offering. Enoch was commended as having pleased God, verse 5. And verse 2 on the one end and verse 39 at the other end tells us that every Old Testament believer was commended by God. Every one of them became like Noah, an heir of righteousness. God was not ashamed of any of the Old Testament faithful. He was glad to be called their God. That's all language from chapter 11. Now, what is this commendation? We've said it's God's approval. Well, I think it's at least three things, or it ought to be three things. First and primarily, this commendation is God's own written testimony to or about these believers. Of course, some of the commendations by God are found in the Bible itself. Some of them are right here in this chapter. There are other commendations from God about Old Testament believers in other places in the Old Testament. So this is one way that God commended them. He publicly, scripturally praised them. But it's important to remember that this acclamation from God about them or to them 
wasn't just objectively written down in some cases in the scripture. It was always spoken to their own souls. God didn't just outwardly say this about them. He said this inwardly to them. In other words, the people of God knew they were the people of God in the Old Testament. How else could any of these who did these enduring difficult, great acts of faith. How could any of them continue on if they thought they were mistaken or doing it by themselves? No, they were convinced by the Spirit of God with their spirit that they were God's and that they were by faith approved by God. But thirdly, by way of commendation, the church should agree with God that all of these people are commendable. God commended them objectively, subjectively, and all the rest of the church should say, Amen, Lord. You are right in your judgment about these brothers and sisters, about these believers. These are ones we ought to esteem. These are ones we ought to get to know. These are ones we ought to imitate. These really should be our heroes of the faith. Oh, yes, there can be others, but these should be numbered among them. We should commend them as God commended them. Now, this first point and this first phrase in verse 39 also tells us how they received God's commendation. It says it was by or for their faith. In the ESV, it says through their faith. So by the exercise of faith toward God, toward God's promises, they were approved by God. This alone in all of Scripture is the only basis for being right with God. Faith alone is the only way to be commended by God. Now this phrase in the beginning of the verse, all these, is of course wide. It's a large number. It includes every man and woman of faith before the coming of Christ. But there were many more who lived without faith during those days. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, not all have faith. So Cain offered a sacrifice right next to Abel. But he didn't have faith, so he was not commended. Ishmael lived for years with Abraham and Isaac, but had neither faith nor God's approval. This should remind us that not everyone who hears the word of God believes it, and is right with God. Why, Esau inhabited the same womb as Jacob, yet he didn't have faith, and he was not commended by God. Not everyone in and around a true church has saving faith. Not everyone raised in a Christian home is a child of God. Not everyone with Christian friends is a friend of God. You must have saving faith to be commended by God. Amen. That is the one and only way anyone is ever at peace with God.
And so, of course, the application, I hope, which will come here and not at the end, is clear to all of us. The fact that you are here this morning doesn't mean God is pleased with you. You may be physically here. Your friends and family commend you for being here. I do as well, but it doesn't mean God approves of you. Religious duty doesn't make you right with God. You must believe the word of God preached to you, especially those truths about Jesus Christ, in order to win that approval. To be saved, you have to have what one man has called the virtue and vigor of faith. The virtue and vigor of faith. What do I mean? Well, the virtue of faith is Jesus Christ. Faith always rests or trusts it depends, it leans on something else. It doesn't lean on itself. Faith isn't in faith. Faith in faith doesn't make you right with God. Faith always has an object. Amen. And that object to get a good word from God must be good. Well, there's only one good, and that's Jesus Christ. And so the virtue of faith is Jesus. He's the one you must believe in. In fact, he is the perfect savior of men. He is Jesus, the Messiah. Faith works like this. It unites us to him. And so his real value, his real worth becomes ours. But faith doesn't just latch on to virtue. A faith that latches on to virtue, a faith that believes in Jesus Christ, is always an active faith, or to use that second V, it's vigorous. It's vigorous. And I, I love the word because I, I just think it, it so well portrays what's been happening in chapter 11. It's not just some acting. It's not just some work. These people worked hard. They were vigorous in the exercise of their faith. Faith not only attaches to Christ, but faith obeys God. It believes God and follows him in everything he calls us to do. So when God called Abel to sacrifice, guess what? Abel sacrificed in faith. When God called Enoch to walk in faith, he walked. He didn't just say, well, I believe. He walked in faith. When God called Noah to build an ark and to preach and to do other things, he didn't just say, well, I believe. He built an ark and he preached in faith. Abraham wandered in faith and on and on. Whatever God calls us to do, we must do in faith. Moses identified with the people of God and all of the saints here were active in their faith. You see, true saving faith is vigorous. It's alive. It's not perfect yet. It can be very confusing at times, but it lives, it does, it works, it's vigorous. So if you claim to be a Christian, a person of faith, but you have no works, can such a faith save you? If you live like the world, why do you think you will escape it on the final day? 
If you love filthy living, why do you think God will make you perfect on judgment day? Examine yourself. See if you be in the faith. Do you have the virtue and vigor of faith that these Old Testament saints had? If so, God commends you. Well, that's our first point. Old Testament believers received God's commendation. Secondly, from the latter half of verse 39, Old Testament believers did not receive God's promised goal. The Old Testament believers did not receive God's promised goal. Again, it says it very clearly, all these did not receive what was promised. Literally, it reads, they did not receive the promise. Now, of course, in one sense, they did receive promises. Verse 33 even says they obtained promises. And they did receive the promise in the sense that they heard the promise's content. They, they knew about it. They understood what it was saying. But of course what the verse means is that they did not receive the goal of the promise. In other words, the promise was not fulfilled in their lifetime. Some things that were promised were, but the promise was not. The ultimate goal was not. And so uh, the translation in front of many of you is a good one when it says they didn't receive what was promised. That's right, they didn't. Verse 13, you will recall, confirms this. It says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. There it is. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, remember verse 1, that's just a description of faith. What faith does is it sees things that, aren't, that are promised but aren't physically present yet, that are future, and it believes they're real. And it acts accordingly. So they acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking about that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. That was the goal. Not to wander. Not to own a little grave plot. God told them the promise, and they believed the promise, but its fulfillment was future for them. What was the promise? Well, it's called different things in this chapter. It's called a homeland in verse 14. It's called a better country and a heavenly one in verse 16. It is resurrection life by several examples and even called a better resurrection according to verse 35. It is to be numbered with the people of God. That's another way of saying it. Another way is to say, well, I have Christ and the reward. That's another answer in the chapter. That's in verse 26. So we might sum up the promise this way. It's to be with God forever in the new heavens and new earth in perfection. It's what you and I might just call glory. <laughs> what in the New Testament is usually just glory. That, that was the goal. Yes, for the Old Testament saint. That was the promise. 
It is to be with God forever in the new heavens and earth in perfection. It's to live in the fullness of the consummate kingdom of God. This is not just a New Testament hope. This was an Old Testament hope. Abraham knew this. The verses we read and previous sermons from this chapter, I hope ably proved that. As we read through Job, it was very clear. He believed in a coming resurrection from the dead when he would see his Savior face to face. That's the hope we're talking about. That's the promise. That's glory. David believed this. Here's Psalm 1711. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. There's There's the perfection. There's with God. When I awake, I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay dead. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I will enjoy the presence of God being made like you. After death, David would live again in perfection in the presence of God. Or think about Psalm 23. What does he predict? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And there's more. And there's more. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Old Testament saints looked forward to something more than just life with God in this life. The Old Testament saints received the statement of this promise, but not the reality of it. And yes, it was very cloudy. Yes, it wasn't nearly as clear as the statements that we have, but they had it nonetheless. Well, why didn't they have the reality of it? That's a reasonable question, and it's one that the the preacher to the Hebrews wants to answer. Why not? Well, verse 40 explains that God had a plan for how the Old Testament saints were supposed to receive the fullness of the promise and be perfected. And that's, that's verse 40. And our third point is this. New Testament believers received something better. New Testament believers received something better. We find this in the phrase, since God has provided something better for us. Now, the word translated provided uh, in, in my translation, it refers to God's foreknowledge and foreordination. This means that God wasn't caught off plan when the promise went unfulfilled in the Old Testament times. It was his plan for it to be incomplete. Why? Because it was also his plan to provide something better. To whom? Us. To us. Now, us is New Testament believers. And what is the something better? Well, of course, it's Christ and his messianic accomplishments. The key is the word better here. Remember, we've looked at this in some detail earlier in our study of Hebrews. It's an important word in the book. And it describes a number of things that are qualitatively better in the New Covenant age than they were in the Old Covenant age. And they all center on the person and work of Christ. Jesus 
was the guarantor of a better covenant with a better priestly ministry and better sacrifices himself. This led to a better hope, the book says. It will lead to a better country, the book says. It will lead to better possessions, the book says, and a better resurrection. And this new covenant work of Christ, well, it it had to be better, didn't it? If anyone was going to receive the promise. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sins of human beings. A spotless lamb cannot produce the spotless righteousness that you need to enter into, stay, and worship in the presence of God. Animals can't do that. There must be something qualitatively better, not just more of it. Well, you know, if we would sacrifice three sheep today or 30,000 sheep today, no, no infinite number of sheep could ever take away one of your sins. Only, the, only a representative man could do that. And he had to be perfect in his doings and dyings. The old covenant could promise these things, and it did. And it could picture these things, and it did in a myriad of ways. But it couldn't produce them. The old covenant couldn't deliver what was promised. And so a better, actually not just a better, a perfect covenant was needed. And this is why Jesus came, and this is what he provided. He was the provision. He was the something better. God has provided the perfect Christ for us. Jesus is a way for men to truly be right, that is, commended before God. Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins, not of the old covenant saints, or the new covenant saints, not of the Jews only or the Gentiles, but of the whole world. He paid the price and lived the life so that the promise could actually be reached. Well, that brings us to our final question and final point, really. What's the relationship between the Old Testament faithful with their unfulfilled promises and the New Testament times that have Christ? And the last truth from verse 40 answers this question, and it's, it's this truth. Together, we will receive the promised perfection. Together, we will receive the promised perfection. It's written this way, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You see, what was promised, this is important to get, what's promised is perfection. That's what the Old Testament saints were promised. That's what the promise was. It's glory. It's perfection. It's the goal. It's being made perfect. Different ways of translating the last word of the chapter. This is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the reward. This is the Father's land where we find rest. This is the full renovation of body and soul. This is where we will see God. This is where we will live in the consummation of the rule of Christ in God. This is more than personal perfection, although it includes that. 
This is the restoration of the entire cosmos. This is the, that was the promise, and this is what will be made perfect, and this is what all believers will enjoy. Romans 8.18 describes it this way. The glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. But it was God's plan that the Old Testament believers shouldn't get there without New Testament believers. Or that New Testament believers shouldn't arrive without Old Testament believers. Only together. Not apart from each other, he says, will this happen. God's plan, remember that word, God provided, God's plan, verse 40, has always been to perfect together the faithful who lived before Christ and the faithful who lived after Christ. The two groups are not to be parted or divided, but perfected together. That's God's plan. So he made promises. He gave faith. They believed and walked accordingly, but never received the fullness of the promise. God sent Jesus Christ. He earned by his living and dying all, all that was necessary for that perfection. And he again poured out faith upon his elect all around the world so that in his time, all those before and all of those after could be united together and not apart from each other, but only together should be made perfect. So there is one people of God throughout all the ages. There is one church, one Israel, the Israel of God. They have one Savior, Jesus Christ, through the blood of the one covenant, by one instrument, faith, to one hope, to one perfection, to one country, to one reward, according to the one promise. We must see the continuity between the faithful in the Old Testament and the faithful in the New that's so plain here in these verses. Yes, there are differences between the Old and New Covenants. Of course there are. There's some discontinuity. But at the heart of all of this is faith. And the true church of the Old Testament and the true Israel of the New Testament, see what I did there? Are one people of God. Amen. One people of God. They've been joined together by him and apart from each other, it is not God's plan for them to be perfected. Only together are they to be perfected. Remember, all the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in who? Christ. Right? He is the yes and the amen of God. There isn't another one. There's not another plan. There's not another purpose. There's only one. It's Christ. It's God himself. How could there be another one? 2 Corinthians 1.20. The, the promises in the Old Testament don't find their yes in some newly restored land or temple or worship system. I mean, what an insult <laughs> if 
frankly, any future sacrificial system would be to the perfect, complete, eternal, atoning work of Jesus Christ. According to Ephesians 1.10, it was God's eternal plan, not his afterthought, not his, oh, they messed up, I've got to come up with a new one. His eternal plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. According to Ephesians 2, who is Christ? He is our peace. He has made us, and in the context, that's Jew and Gentile, both one so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Oh, yeah, there used to be two, but in Jesus, there's not two anymore. There's just one, and it all centers in him. If faith has united you to Jesus Christ and you are in him, then you are one with the people of God. You are a part of the one people of God. There is no other. Now that Christ has come, what place is there to divide Jewish believers from Gentile? There's, there's no reason to do that. This is impossible. Christ cannot be divided. Would we really want to reestablish the dividing wall of hostility? Would we really want to bring back the Old Testament ordinances, as Ephesians 2 says? May it never be. Listen to what Christ did to bring us Jews and Gentiles, Old and New Testament believers together. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's Gentiles. And peace to you who were near. That's the Jews. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. To co-opt a different ceremony, let me just say, what God has joined asunder in forming the church, let no man divide. Let no man tear apart. That's the summary of, of chapter 11. Why could Old Testament faithful men and women be examples for us? If it's a different faith in a different object with a different end, with a different, it, it, it makes no sense for him to make all of these uh, points to us. We're not to imitate them, and yet we clearly are. And that will be reinforced as we, moved in, as we move, Lord willing, next week into the next chapter where it says, all right, you're a part of this great cloud of witnesses. They're urging you on. You do these things. You endure like they endured. Again, if they're a separate people with a separate end, with a different perfection, etc., why could you make such a point? Well, you couldn't. And, of course, he doesn't. He shows that we are clearly one. Well, may God help us to appreciate what Christ has done in joining old and new together into one uh, perfected people of God.